morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Kevin Kwan, whose new novel, Sex and Vanity, has just been published. Kevin, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for inviting me. You had a huge and much-deserved success with the Crazy Rich Asian books. Why did you want to step away from that series and those characters and do something a little different? I really felt it was time to sort of spread my wings, number one, and also just do something for myself that was um, what I thought would be less complex (laughs) and easier and a breath of fresh air. You know, the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy was over 1,800 pages and so many sprawling stories and characters and timelines and places. And I I just wanted to get back to the basics in a way and do kind of, you know, I I saw this book almost as the sorbet course, a palate (laughs) cleanser of sorts, you know, (laughs) and what better way to do that than to go to Capri and to have, you know, a nice summer romp. That was the intention. Um, Of course, the book ended up being much more complicated, much more complex, and much more layered than I intended. (laughs) But that does always seem to happen to me. It is funny how that happens. Yeah, you start out with a simple idea, and then it suddenly just kind of layers and layers and layers. You dedicate this book to Capri and to New York. And you call New York the city that took me in, nurtured me, and changed me forever. Um, I'm the author of a New York novel that's coming out pretty soon, so I'm curious to hear about your own New York experience. Can you expand on that description for us? Oh, wow. How long do you have? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I grew up in Singapore for the first 11 years of my life, and then I was sort of forcibly removed (laughs) by my dad. And, you know, our family immigrated to the U.S., and I found myself suddenly in suburban Houston, Texas, which Mm. could not have been more different. Wow. Um, from Singapore, which was even in the early 80s, you know, a really thriving, bustling metropolis. Um, And so I really craved getting back to that environment. And I remember visiting New York, you know, as a teenager, going, you know, if if I can't be back in Singapore, this is the next best place. And of course, you know, when I was a teenager, I was also discovering all the amazing New York writers on all the beats, you know, um, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Dan Wakefield, um, you know, amazing authors and sort of falling in love with the idea of like moving to the village, becoming a bohemian, <laughs> you know, writing on a typewriter, you know, all these romantic <laughs> yeah, things that only yeah. a teenager can have. <laughs> and I was actually able to accomplish that dream, you know, astonishingly enough. Um, after 10 years in Texas, I, I found myself in New York living in the village. And I always tell people this um, in 10 years in Texas, I made probably about six good real friends. Mm -hmm. It took me 10 years to do that. In New York, within the first three weeks, I had made about 50 new, amazing, close friends, um, all of whom are still friends to this day. 
Um, so it really did embrace me. It, it really was the city where I really found my groove, you know, where I could meet someone in a dorm room and, and have a discussion and not, and be completely understood yeah. and completely heard. Um, and there was something very special about that time and that era um, in the mid-90s, you know, for me. And just the world was my oyster. Manhattan yeah. just opened itself with all its various, you know, velvet curtains. And um, it was wonderful. Yeah. So we begin this novel with a destination wedding in Capri, where the groom is the son of a count and a contessa, and the bride comes from a not insignificantly wealthy family. Um what is it about uh, the writing about the uber wealthy that you enjoy? I mean, as readers, we've come to expect that to a certain extent. But what what draws you to that um, to that group? Um, I I think number one, it's it's a it's actually kind of a safe space for me. It's it's a world I actually know well. You know, back in creative writing school, they always said write what you know, mm-hmm. and this this is the wor- a world that. Fortunately or unfortunately, I, I know, <laughs> you know, so I, I play to my strengths in that way. But I also feel that naturally, you know, beyond that, um, I am a beautifier. You know, I, I look for the beauty in things. I, I look for the sumptuousness in, in experiences. And that world naturally lends itself to that. So, you know, setting a, a book in Capri at a fabulous wedding, um, that's just really in my wheelhouse yeah. <laughs> for some, you know, for whatever reason. I think it's interesting that you put it, you, you, you talk about yourself as a beautifier because there were so many times in this book where I was really struck by the relationship between wealth and beauty. I mean, you're in, you're in Italy where you see these, uh, these fantastic villas that have some of which have been parts of them date back all the way to the Roman empire, but, but were built with wealth. You think of the Medici's, um, you, you have the, the modern art world in here. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of relationship between both historically and contemporarily between the, the wealthy and, and, the, and beauty? You know, this is so interesting that you point that out because I've never actually thought about that. But you are so right. There is this relationship that exists. And I find that, you know, if we want to go back to ancient times, you know, there is a mathematical beauty ideal, you know, that we aspire to, that we find naturally pleasing. And I think what the, the well-to-do have been able to do over the ages is to get closer and closer to that, to that refinement. You know, yeah. um, having money moves you out of the slums. You can move into a, you know, a nicer house, you know, in, on the Via Appia or whatever <laughs> until you get to your Roman villa, right? Um, so I think that's been the gravitational pull of... of what money has been able to do in, in modern civilization, you know, and as, as people gentrify, as people prosper, they've always wanted to aspire to, you know, social climbing and being part of that. And so they cultivate their tastes. Um, but the tastes do adhere, I think, to this sort of, you know, beauty standard to certain ideal and it changes from culture to culture. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Chinese have a, have a different beauty standard than Western civilization does. But in the end, it is this search for beauty um, that I think, you know, is connected to a place of harmony, of peace, of stability, you know, of, of not being 
within the teeming masses. Put it this way. Yeah, yeah. And if you're looking for beauty, and also in this the case of this book, if you're looking for romance, it, it seems like the Isle of Capri. You can't do much much better than that. Um, what tell us about your history, your personal history with that particular island, and why you wanted to set um, the first half of this novel there. Well, I discovered Italy through E.M. Forster, first of all. Mm, you know, wow. A Room of a View yeah. um, is, is one of my favorite books of all time, as is the movie. And so having discovered that as a teenager, I sort of, you know, it, it really made me want to visit Italy, Italy for the first time. And I was able to a few years later, you know, with my family. And that's when we first discovered Capri. Um, like most tourists, we only spent a day there. Yeah. But being there for just a few hours convinced me, oh, this is one place on the planet, I have to come back because it is so startlingly, jaw-droppingly beautiful Hmm. that you can't quite process it in five hours. Um, There's something about the geography of the rock itself. You know, it's this volcanic rock rising out of the Tyranian Sea and the way the sunlight hits it and the way the water is so blindingly blue. And you're on this beautiful town that's actually atop the, the mountain, you know, Capri mm. is actually an elevated town and you're wandering around these beautifully paved ter- terracotta streets, you know, overhung with bougainvillea and hibiscus. It's just, it's like not no place else on earth. And it's, it's been an sort of international playground for the rich, um, since, you know, about a thousand BC, <laughs> right. you know, the ancient, <laughs> the ancient Romans, you know, were, were there and they sort of, you know, really used it as a, as a, as a pleasure dome. And you know, the emperor Augustus moved his capital of the Roman empire to Capri in, in 50 AD because he wanted to rule from paradise. Yeah. So it's, it's, a very special island that has also incidentally attracted many, many writers um, over the centuries. Um, in in more recent times, you know, Pablo Neruda yeah. spent some time there. Shirley Hazard lived there for many years. Um, Graham Greene also, you know, spent many years there. So there's a there's a grand literary tradition that comes from the island. So I felt it was only natural to to pay homage not just to Forster's book but also to the island itself yeah. by setting my novel there. Well, we've been giving our readers a few hints about sex and vanity, but tell us quickly what the book is about, and especially uh, tell us a little bit about its heroine. So the book is really um, a love triangle of sorts. Um, It begins with Lucy Tang Churchill, um, the heroine. She is um, a biracial American. Her her mother is Chinese, um, and her father comes from a very sort of elite, waspy family from Manhattan. So she's always had this tension between the Asian side of herself and the WASP side of herself. And, and that becomes central in her story as she goes to Capri, ostensibly to attend the wedding of a childhood friend. Um, but there she meets a man by the name of George Zhao, you know, a strapping young <laughs> Hong Kong boy who actually spent some time in Australia. So he surfs, you know, <laughs> and, you know, they have the meet cute that sort of yeah. is the, the beginning structure of, of, of the, you know, the book, which not to get too much away, but, you know, they swap rooms at a hotel because she, he has a view, she doesn't, and he kindly offers to give her the room with a view. And from there, that departure point, my story takes off in, in a much different direction yeah. Yeah. Um, with all the complexities and dramas and comedy of um, the situation they all find themselves in. So I was talking to a couple of weeks ago with a nonfiction writer, and we were talking about how we love 
the usefulness of footnotes. And we were kind of bemoaning the fact that, oh, you know, when you write a novel, you don't get to have footnotes. But you do have footnotes, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you use them in this book. Thank you. I mean, I, I think I was really originally, I have to thank Junio Diaz. I was inspired, you know, to use footnotes um, from, from his book, A Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, yeah. um, and to use them copiously. You know, I began using them at first with the Crazy Wage series because I felt there was so much I needed to explain about this world that I was writing about, so much cultural nuance, so much language and translations and little anecdotes that just really didn't fit into the main narrative. So I just, you know, very kind of fastidiously began just footnoting things that I felt deserved more interest. But as I began doing it, I realized I could really put it in a fun voice. You know, I could really adopt a character and, and really give the footnotes you know, uh, a really rather snarky point of view, which yeah, ended yeah. up really amusing the readers. Um, and so that's a device I've kept on for this novel as well. Um, you know, it's almost like these footnotes are, you know, part commentary, part Greek chorus, and, you know, and, and part kind of annoying cousin that's <laughs> prodding you as you read the book. And, you know, I love the ones where, where the, the voice of the footnote says, like contradicts what a character has just told you, you know, it says, no, she's wrong about that. Actually it was such and such. Um, the, the insertion, exactly. the insertion of that voice, whether it's the voice of the author or the voice of, you know, uh, uh, the footnote character, it, it reminds me of so many things. It reminds me of, of the authorial voice of Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland, but it reminds me also of, of metafiction. What, what, what are your own influences as a writer? You know, I have such a diversity of interests and influences. Um, and it, it really runs the gamut depending on which book we're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, in sex and vanity, uh, you know, of course, you know, Forster was, was definitely an influence, but so were, you know, other writers that really, um, were great satirists, Ada Fortin, Dominic Dunn, and, um, and Joan Didion, who is not often thought of as a satirist, but I, I find that her, much of her early fiction, um, had, these very surgical, you know, hits <laughs> of satire in them, um, particularly in, in books like A Book of Common Prayer or yeah. Played As It Lays. Yeah. You know, she really had a, a way to kind of really skewer and dissect the cultures she was, she was looking at. And so, you know, I, I draw that inspiration from a variety of places. So this book begins and ends with letters. There's a letter or maybe an email at the beginning, and there's, there's one at the end. And there's more than a passing resemblance both in the title and in the love triangle to, to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And it, as somebody who's, who's written a novel about Jane Austen writing Pride and Prejudice, this like immediately come up in my head. Did you, did you look to Austen? Did you reread her? Was she an influence? Or, or is this all just a coincidence? <laughs> you know, she has always been an influence. And so maybe subliminally, um, you know, I haven't read, um, you know, I, I read all of her books years ago and haven't read them in quite a while. So um, maybe it filtered down in a way, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it was not intentional this time around. I mean, one of the things that really struck me is that opening and closing with the letter immediately mm -hmm. kind of puts me in that world of the 18th century epistolary novel. And, and in a way, this is a modern novel of manners, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, greatly influenced by her and, and other writers, you know, um, who 
captured that world. You know, Trollope, for example, yeah. um, Henry James, um, you know, Edith Wharton, I've already mentioned. But um, there's a grand tradition, I think, of, of you know, having that epistolary novel now, when, that I think does lend its influence to my work. When you set out to write uh, about a wedding with a, and your heroine, your, your main character is a female, um, and everybody's very wealthy, you have to do something that a lot of men are not particularly good at, and that is you have to write about fashion, and in particular women's fashion, and you write about it really well. And it's obviously an important part of the work, the world in which this novel is set. How did you become so fashion literate? Um, you know, I went to design school. <laughs> you know, fashion has always been, fashion and design has always been an interest. So whether it is actually looking at fashion design or architectural design or interior design or product design, it's always been an interest of mine. And I went to school for it. And then in the 90s and early aughts, I was actually a design consultant. Hmm. So I, I worked for publishers, I worked for architects, different, you know, it was my job to know what was on trend. Um, it was my job to sort of recommend looks to people. Um, I have to say, I'm actually not that much of a, a current fashion expert um, as I used to be, just because in the last 10 years, I've been so busy writing and yeah. <laughs> working on Hollywood projects. I've kind of, you know, I've lost the pulse. Um, so, for example, in the in the the last two Crazy Rotation books, you know, Trying to Rich Girlfriend and People and Rich People Problems, I actually had a friend who was an actual fashion consultant help me with the fashion. So I, I cheated in that way. You know, she <laughs> would literally read my book and suggest outfits and, you know, she knew that world um, very well. And, and so I, I thankfully had her as the sort of the fashion curator for my books. Um, this book, believe it or not, I consider fashion light because <laughs> there are far fewer characters you have to dress yeah, that's... <laughs> in, in this book. Um, so this one I pulled off by myself. And all, all I can say is thank God for Google and for, <laughs> you know, Vogue.com, where you can actually literally like look at fashion shows and, and you know, isolate outfits. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I actually do really visualize my characters and I dress them for each occasion they're going to be in because I know it's, it's important for my readers. They, they yeah. love that. Yeah. And um, I never imagined I'd be doing that, but here we are. And this is a world where sometimes the characters are dressed in four or five different outfits in one day. And it also strikes me again that here, here's another point of this sort of wealth and beauty uh, coming together in, you know, we talked about it in art, but, but it comes together in fashion as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I think in, in this case, a lot of it has to do with keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. You know, yeah. when, when you are in a certain social strata, you have to look the part. And so there is this, you know, very sort of desperate <laughs> climb to the top, you know, using fashion and, and, and being the one that exclusively gets to wear this dress before anyone else does. You know, it's, it is very 19th and 18th century in yeah. a way. And you have you great, know, you have great the, moments yeah. where the fashion faux pas is somebody being overdressed rather than underdressed. I, and I love that. I love the, I love the club where everybody's expected to sort of look, you know, like they've been out working in the garden or something, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, introduce exactly. us, you introduce us to your characters. A lot of times when you first mention a character, um, you tell us what schools they went to uh, in, in a little set of parentheses. Um, and so, so this question comes from uh, Summit School, Woodbury, Forest, Davidson, and Vermont College of Fine Art. That's my parentheses. What does our schooling tell us about each other, and, and why did you want to introduce characters that way? Well, it, 
at first it began as a very tongue-in-cheek sort of device, you know, um, a way to satirize the world that I'm, I'm satirizing in this book, which is that sort of WASP establishment world. Um, I found one of the things, you know, in moving to New York in my early 20s, um, was that I would be meeting other young, recent college grads, and within three minutes of meeting them, they would announce to you all the schools they'd been to. Right. You know, it's kind of like doing the school exchange. Like, instead of exchanging business cards, you sort of exchange <laughs> all the schools. And it's, it's basically social stratification. You know, it's a way to mark you, to, to see if you're part of the tribe or where you fit in in their universe, I find. And so I found that time and time again, you know, as I moved through life in New York, there was this emphasis um, in these elite circles on your educational pedigree. So I wanted to put that in right up front when you first meet a character. So you know, <laughs> you know, this girl went to Miss Porter's or this is a Harvard boy. Um, but it became a fun game in, in the sense that I was able to actually create entire biographies for these people um, based on their schools. And I, I really yeah. took great care in, in thinking about their lives, the trajectory of their lives, what happened, um, and which schools they ended up going to, to the point where I've actually been contacted by you know several friends and been messaged by some readers with very pointed questions about certain characters. Oh, really? You know, yeah. like they would, they, you know, one character in particular. They're like, why did she go to this amazing private school but end up at this bad college? <laughs> you know, what happened in between? You know? yeah, yeah. So they, you know, curious minds really want to know. So I, I really, I like having that additional layer of the educational resumes. You know. As a calling card, yeah, um, and, and it's fun. It's a and fun it must, little joke. It, it yeah, must have been especially fun to yeah. suss out the because um, you have you go all the way back to kindergarten and in some cases preschool. And I think you know it, it's one thing for an author to go, oh, okay, this is person's Harvard and this person is University of Tennessee, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to to do the research and find out you know what what preschools or kindergartens they would have gone to. And I love that that that's part of it. Oh yeah. I was emailing friends around the world, and sometimes they would get into heated arguments with other people, so trying to decide to me which was the <laughs> which was the most snobbish kindergartner, which was the prep school in Taiwan that you had to go to, or you know whether it was Italy or Greece or whatever. It was so it became a fun little project unto itself, um, and so I, I hope it's something that a lot of readers can enjoy too. Yeah, yeah. Now you can't write about Italy, at least I don't think you can write about Italy without writing about food, and you certainly do that in the context of this sort of week-long set of wedding celebrations. Tell us about the relationship between yourself, food, and writing. Well, my name is Kevin Kwan, and I'm a pasta addict. <laughs> so, yeah, that much is true. And, yes, I mean, Italy is, is, is really a feast, you know, for the senses. But, but so much of life in Italy and traveling to Italy revolves around food. Um, and so I really wanted to capture that. And it's something I've always done in all my books, um, Maybe it's, you know, I, I, I blame Enid Blyton. I don't know if you know her. Oh, work. yeah, absolutely. You know, she was a, a yeah. very prolific children's author. But I remember even in her children's books, even in, the, even in the books about, you know, witches and fairies and this and that, there was a lot of eating going on by the children. You know, there were a lot of desserts that were lovingly described and dishes and, and things like that. And, and so I, I sort of really um, borrowed from that, I think. I've, I've always wanted to write books that make myself hungry and that make readers hungry and... and so it's it's been a constant theme, you know, from the, the Crazy Richardson trilogy and especially into this book where I really wanted to capture, you know, um, the cuisine of Italy in, you know, at its finest. 
um, in cap rate. Yeah. I love that you mentioned Enid Blyton because when my when we were living in England in the 1990s for a few months, my then nine-year-old daughter went on a big Enid Blyton kick. And so we would read some of the books out loud to her. And I, and I saved a food sentence from Enid Blyton, who, as you said, was so prolific that she couldn't always write well. Um, it, it, to me, it's, well, it's, I, I used it with students to say, here's an example of a bad sentence. And it was the smell of bacon cooking was very good. And I just thought, Oh, Enid, you can do better than that when you're writing about food. You know? <laughs> now, well, it was the fourth novel she'd written that day. So, probably you know, so. Yeah. She wrote something like 700 so books. About it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Olivia, one of the characters, Olivia, is is trying to show Lucy around a little of what she calls the real Capri, away from the tourist areas. Um, how do you, how do you travel? When you travel, what do you seek out, and and uh, how do you try to find the real in the places that you visit? I have to confess, you know, I there's a part of me there. It, it's very much like Olivia in that I really do as much as possible try to. I, I see every new city I visit as a, almost like a detective-like adventure mm-hmm. where I, I always try to cut below the surface and I, I always avoid tourist areas. Um, I've been to cities where I've, I've never visited a single museum. For me, it's about street life mm-hmm. and, and really going into neighborhoods and, and finding where locals hang out, um, you know, which are the cafes they go to, what are the restaurants they like to eat at, where do they like to shop. I, I, I really, truly love supporting local artisans who are doing things, you know, at a very sort of um, fine artisanal level, but where you can't necessarily find, you know, in, in just shopping online or, or anywhere else. Yeah. So that's, that's part of my travel habit is I, I try to find the authenticity to a place as much as I possibly can. So I can, I can tell you, certainly for me, and I think this is going to be true for a lot of your readers, and you know, maybe, maybe you're working with the uh, Capri Tourism Agency, but this book makes Not you <laughs> this book makes you want to go to that island. It absolutely does. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this is now next on my list. So, so when we're able to do this again, when we're able to travel, what advice would you have for somebody who who wants to travel to this island? Well, the first thing I always say is. Um, Please spend a few days there. Mm-hmm. Um, most tourists make the mistake of just going there for the day. And it's a, an island that is so rich in attractions and culture. And there's so much to see. You know, I've, I've been there probably a dozen times, if not more. And each time I discover new things mm-hmm. on this tiny spit of an island. So do yourself a favor. Give yourself at least three days. Because there will be so much to see, but then you also get into the rhythm of the island, and you're not rushing around from place to place trying to tick off every box. Um, and the island really does truly come alive after 5 p.m. when the last ferry boat has left with all its day trippers. Um, that's when the island becomes magic because the pace, the energy just changes. Mm-hmm. The locals come out. You know, it's a, it's a nighttime island that you know people eat at nine or ten p.m. Um, and it's really you know, it's fabulous. There's, there's, it, there's something for everyone on this island at every budget point, I should add. Yeah. You know, you can go there, and if you're really into hiking, you can do some of the most marvelous hikes in the world. If you just want to be in the water, you can spend a whole week, you know, boating around the island or spending time at different beach clubs where you just pay, you know, a little, a few euros to get in and spend the day, you know, on, on the shore. You can make it a food experience, or you can make it an archaeology experience. So it's, it's an island of infinite variety, I find, yeah. um, and it's, it's worth staying, staying a while. 
So I found it hard to read this book about parties and weddings and gatherings and clubs and restaurants without thinking the whole time in the back of my head that a lot of what's happening in the pages of your book is not happening in the real world right now. Um, How has COVID affected your world? And could you imagine writing a novel that's set in 2020? You know, it's interesting. I actually had to backdate my book as I was finishing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I finished this book in in mid-February, and the book was supposed to end in 2020. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, um, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, there's a pivotal scene at the end of the book um, that is, was no longer possible <laughs> yeah. in 2020 because of the lockdown. Yeah. So I had to backdate my book by a year. Um, and so moving everything by the year, readjusting all the ages, and then all the different cultural nuances had to change, too. Yeah, oh my gosh. You know, there are a lot of things, things that happened that I had to, you know, so I thankfully had an amazing copy editor who went in and said to me, oh, you know, you can't say this because this hasn't happened yet. You can't use this song because it wow. wasn't out yet. That wow. year. Um, things like that. So it was interesting, um, even having to do that, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, as we were going into the last final stages of copy editing, um, never would I have imagined. And I actually talked to my publisher, you know, at length saying, should we even be releasing this book this year? Like, is it, you know, we have so much happening in the world is this the right book um, at this time? Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, it's it's been a surreal experience, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, it is remarkable how um, moving, a, moving a book in time, just especially in, in recent time, even just a year or two, like you said, is going to throw off so many different things. It becomes, it's this little balancing act when you create it, isn't it? It truly was, yeah. Had to change a lot of a lot more than I thought I would, yeah. <laughs> just because of that. Let's talk about process just for a minute. Early in the book, um, within the first few pages, we have a wedding invitation, and then there's this page that's a list of all the events that are going to happen about a week week's worth of events, and essentially it provides an outline for the reader of the first half of the novel. Are are you an outliner? Do you work from an outline yourself? I very much don't. <laughs> I, I have a very haphazard process um, where I just, you know, I sit with an empty page every day and, and I fill it up and see what happens. And, and so I'm, I'm very much kind of a chaos theory writer, I think. <laughs> um, but this was, you know, using that, that sort of shuttle of, of events was, was, was my way to sort of invite the reader into the book as if they were a guest, yeah. you know, yeah. at the wedding themselves. And in a way, it's, you know, we find ourselves looking forward to the next thing because we already kind of in the back of our head go, oh, yeah, this is going to be where they go to the, you know, this party or that event. Or, and, and we know we, we know a little bit about what's coming next, but, of course, we have no idea what's, how it's going to play out. Yeah, and that, that pretty much sums up my writing experience. I, <laughs> yeah. I never know <laughs> what's going to happen from day to day. Um, you know, I have general idea of where I want the characters to head. And, you know, the, the key points of what has to happen, you know, boy meets girl, you know, girl breaks her heart, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. But how we get there is, is, is a mystery to me. Right. Um, and um, so this part novel, of fun this, for me. This novel divides almost exactly in half. It, it, we have these two parts. Uh, I, in my head, I was thinking two halves of the novel, two islands, although really it's three islands because you have Manhattan and Long Island both in the, in the second part. Um, and they're these two halves are separated by about five years. Did you plan that from the beginning? And if so, what, what opportunities do you, did that symmetry present to you as a writer? 
I, I did plan it. And, you know, I, I have to say, I, I, I borrowed that plan from E.M. Forster's book. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, he starts his, his book in, in Florence, and then the action moves at the mid, you know, after the midway point to, to London and to the country, English countryside. Right. And so this was my redux of that. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, for me, it was about contrasting um, these two worlds, you know, when Lucy sets, sets foot on Capri, she's in really, she's on fantasy Island. Yeah. She's in this otherworldly, you know, garden of earthly delights in a way. And it's, it's a very subconscious awakening that she experiences on this Island. Um, this intoxication, you know, she's spellbound and it, it leads her to do very reckless things that she normally would not do in her very proper, very studied, you know, sort of debutante like life in New York. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's an island of, of sort of sensual freedom in a way, right? And then back in New York, you know, five years later, we're back in reality, albeit, you know, she has a very privileged reality, but she is still, you can see, she is cosseted and and, you know, confined within these bubbles of privilege that yeah. she's in in New York. Yeah. And I wanted to show that. And that was my way of, you know, going and satirizing New York society in a way that Forster satirized London society at the time. Sure. sure. Um, and, then, and then for me, you know, his English countryside was my Hamptons because that's, that's where yeah. New Yorkers go and yeah. spend the weekend. And that was a way to, to really continue to look at that that set of sort of elite problems <laughs> within that community. And you, the novel is so steeped in place, and we, we talked about Capri, but also, as you just mentioned, the Hamptons. Um, did you, do you write in those places, or do you go and visit and then sort of bring it home and process? Well, my, my intention was to write in those places. <laughs> that was the original idea. Um, I thought I could go to Capri, write some of this book. And then also spend time in the Hamptons. That didn't end up happening. I ended up writing it, you know, in this fever deadline, <laughs> sort of panic, um, you know, in a corner of my living room in, in L.A., yeah. um, just because of, you know, just life and, and deadlines. But I, I always have to write about places that I know well, yeah. or at least have been to. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't make up a place, you know, out of thin air. And um, I have to breathe the air of, of the place to be, to be able to really evoke it. One of the things we haven't talked about um, in terms of your character, Lucy, is that she is, among other things, a painter. And we get this sense in some scenes that it is, in her paintings, really the only place where her, her truest, deepest self is revealed. Can you talk to us a little bit about Lucy as an artist? And also tell us if you find the act of creativity a way to, to sort of access your truest self? Thank you for that question. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And no one's, no one's brought that up yet. <laughs> um, yeah, I really felt like you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, Lucy reveals so much more of her, her inner self through her work in a way that she's not even conscious of. You know, there's a rawness. There is a honesty. Um, it's a way for her to truly express um, her innermost feelings. And it comes across on the canvas. And I was um, in Venice last year, um, last summer, and um, stumbled upon an amazing retrospective of Helen Frankenthaler's work. Hmm. Um, And, you know, she's, you know, I could sort of really picture Lucy, you know, sort of being inspired by that. Another young woman who really, um, you know, used abstract expressionism and sort of 
redefined it for herself in the most beautiful way um, to really, you know, create these landscapes of, of her soul, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was an inspiration point for, for how I approached looking at Lucy's work, um, the rawness to it, the looseness, you know, being able to paint on raw canvas itself yeah. using watercolor or acrylic and then letting the, the colors bleed and spill. Um, that's, you know, that's the kind of artist I wanted her to be because to me that's so contrasted with the decorum of her life, yeah, you know, yeah. um, how she always has to present herself in perfection, you know, with the right foot forward. Um, you know, she's, she's almost like a thoroughbred. She's been bred within an inch of her life <laughs> to always, you know, be that perfect girl. And here she can experiment. She can be wild on canvas. And I, I feel that that's, that's the, a way that most artists I know work. And it's, it's certainly, um, the way I work when I write, you know, I, I am by nature a very reserved, um, introverted, measured, controlled person. And then I write these crazy, crazy books of crazy <laughs> characters. I don't know where they come from because, you know, it's not me. And I think people who know me well, my friends, my close friends, my family, they're, they're astonished when they read my, my, you know, these novels especially because yeah, it's yeah. so uncharacteristic. Um, but you know, I guess it's, it's, it's where I let my wild side out, you know, yeah, especially yeah. when I'm satirizing, um, the, the more misbehaving characters in my books. Yeah. So did you, did you try to actually have anybody create Lucy's artwork or was it all just in your mind? Cause you, you describe it in a way that really does feel like I'm standing in front of a canvas. Thank you. No, it's, it's tr- truly all in my mind, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, I was just, you know, I was really describing, you know, work that was a blend of, of Helen Frankenthaler and, and Morris Lewis yeah, and actually yeah. an, another friend of mine who, who paints on raw canvas, who's a contemporary artist, Liz Marcus, you know, um, fantastic artist with, you know, these amazing, she paints everything from, you know, socialites to dinosaurs. Wow. Um, wow. On, on raw canvas and does such a beautiful job of it. It's, it's, there's this kinetic wildness to it. Mm-hmm. You do a great job in, in this book and in your other books as well of, of both showing us and telling us the details of a different culture. I mean, it's, it's not just Capri. It's not just China. It's, you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cultures that, that play in here. Um, but in particular, um, the, it, with the Asian characters, do you, do you see yourself as you know, almost a cultural ambassador and helping us understand that part of the world? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. Um, in a way, yeah. In, in, a, in a way, you know, that was my intention when I first began writing Crazy Rich Asians. I felt that no one had looked at contemporary Asia um, through fiction. Yeah. And no one yeah. had really sort of revealed the intimate lives of these people. You know, there's, there, there were so many stereotypes out there. And right. there was so much kind of loose speculation about who are these people? Who are these sort of crazy rich people coming to New York, or coming to London, buying up all the luxury goods, um, you know? buying up the real estate. And I wanted to give life to, to these voices. So in a way, I, I do feel like I am trying to sort of reveal and kind of, you know, um, enlighten, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say it strikes home for me, especially I have a Chinese son-in-law. And so I'm going to have grandchildren who are, are much like Lucy, I, I hope. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see as, as the years go by. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into your writing and into you as well. So if you're ready, we will begin. 
what word do you love to work into your writing? Exquisite. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Actually. Okay. Where's your favorite place to write? At home. Where could you never write? Probably my mother's house. <laughs> <laughs> I've written in cafes. I've written in lots of places. Yeah. But, you know, um, yeah, she's always telling me, you know, come, come, come spend time and write at my, my home. And I'm just like, uh, somehow that's not going to work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? All of them. Um, oh. I, I think I'm, I'm terrible with grammar. What was the first book you remember reading? I think the first book that truly made an impact would have been The Wishing Chair by mm-hmm. Enid Blyton. Mm-hmm. It's the book that ignited my love for reading. Yeah. What are you reading now? I'm reading a uh, nonfiction book called The Last Kings of Shanghai. Um, I can't remember who the author is, but it's about um, two pivotal families who are really responsible for so much of the commerce and, and financial success of Shanghai mm-hmm. in the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, the, the Sassoon family and the Kaduri family. Yeah. What book would you like to have written? The first Harry Potter book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of book? Just for the royalties. <laughs> yeah. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I would love to write um, a great memoir Mm, and to do it in the style that was done um, in Savage Grace. I don't know if you know that book by um, it's Stephen Aronson is one of the authors Mm -hmm. um, of the it's it's co-authored, but it's it's a book told in in anecdotes and in stories um, and interviews from different people from different people um, about um, Barbara Bakeland and, and what happened in, in, in the scandal of her life. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I laughed my way through your book. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Kevin Kwan, whose novel Sex and Vanity is available wherever books are sold. Kevin, thanks for joining us. This was so much fun. Thank you. I've been out running a lot this summer, and when I'm on the road, I do two things. Maintain a safe distance from other pedestrians and listen to audiobooks from Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support the literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking my summer vacation on August 15th, but I'll return on September 1st when I'll be talking to actor and writer Henry Winkler about his works for children with learning differences. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.